passage, starting um, in verse 9. It's a commandment God gave Zechariah to do. Zechariah is a prophet uh, trying to work with the kingdom of Israel after they were taken away into a nation of Babylon. And when they were exiled there and put under slavery there, God freed them only after 70 years in which they could return back to their homeland. And God gave uh, Zechariah a word, which we have here in this book, which is a word of many oracles, signs, visions, prophecies, where he is trying to encourage the people to get back to the work of rebuilding the nation of God, the the city of God, um, Zion, the temple. And he's working to encourage them to be faithful to the end, to remember God's promises. And as they're working through this, it is here that God gives Zechariah a particular sign to do. And it goes like this. Zechariah 6.9 And the word of the Lord came to me, Zechariah says. Take from the exiles Haldiah, Tobijah, and Jedidiah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of ayahs. <laughs> These are three random people. We don't know who they are. But as people are trickling in from Babylon over here, they're coming back to the promised land. And they're coming back, and they're coming back. Apparently, this new group of people, led by three men I just listed, have come back from Babylon to Jerusalem. From the east, they've come back to the west. They're, they're wise men from the east bearing treasures, if that sounds familiar at all. When you hear the stories of Christmas. And they come. And Zechariah is commanded to take from them silver and gold. Wise men with treasures from the east. And with that silver and gold, God said, Make a crown. Set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now what I hope to do in this time is to unpack that so that that becomes immediately relevant to all of us as we would know God's wisdom in his word to know the signs of the time to know what we must do next so there is this vision that Zechariah is given and it's a vision that's desperately needed today it's the vision of one man who has two jobs It's a vision that we do not have in our society. 
And it's very dangerous to not know this. That there is one man who's been given two jobs. The image was the man Joshua who was told to be a priest and a king. It's a great need for us because to understand what a priest is and to understand what a king is in the context of ancient Israel is relevant to knowing everything about how the church relates to the state, about how the secular relates to the sacred, about how religion actually does obviously in some way mix with politics. This mixture is put together in an image in which a man named Joshua was crowned as priest and king. The priest and the king in the ancient Israel world were two different people with two different types of powers. One was secular and one was sacred. The power is represented by two different swords. So when a man would come into the temple to offer sacrifice, a priest would be holding a blade. And that he would sacrifice the animals with that blade and cut them up. And it was a real blade, and it was sharp, and it did the same job as any other blade. And the same exact time, you would travel across the corridor into another palace, which was the king's palace, and there there was a man who also had a blade. And it was a real blade, and it was a sharp blade, and it cut just the same, but it didn't cut animals, it cut men. It cut men in their um, condemnation for criminals, but it also cut men in war. It was the wrath of God through the king, through a blade. This same blade travels through to our present day. That there are two institutions we have of the church and of the state. And both institutions have been given blades. The one that has changed primarily is the church in the sense that we have been given Jesus Christ as our high priest. And therefore, he has ascended into the heavenly places, into the spiritual realm, that now the blade and everything else that it represented of old is spiritualized. Not because we just happen to make it spiritualized, but it's truly spiritualized. Because what once was offered was sheep, and he offered his own blood. What once was cut was animals, and he cut his own body. He has satisfied this reality. And then now he has given us the ability to cut one another with the word, the gospel. And this is what is given to the church. Today we need to know a big distinction between the church and the state. It's a distinction that made Israel different than all the other nations around them. That is to say, if anyone was a king, say of Babylon or the Hittites or Egypt, they were kings and priests. They were the ones who actually told you what God said. They were the ones who actually went to you on behalf of God. The king did. And also, they were the one that would cause judicial hearings and execution and everything else that the state does. The king was the priest of every nation. And the king was the dictator of every nation. And in the wisdom of God's word, that never happened in Israel. Because in the wisdom of God's plan, God separated those things. 
Think about that. That in our present circumstance, we take a difference between politics and religion, church and state, and we separate them. We didn't just make that up. That came out of a Christian worldview. That came out of Western culture. Because that comes from what God has given Israel thousands and thousands of years ago. That there were priests and there were kings. And they are opposite one another. They have two different functions. And they have to work together under one head. It's like in football. Football is gearing up this year. And you have the offensive head coach. And you have the defensive head coach. You have these coaches who sometimes have different goals in mind. One want to find the holes to run. One want to plug up the holes to defend. They're both working on the same team with opposite goals in mind entirely. Because both the offensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator are working under the head coach. Now we have a problem in our society in which we have removed the head coach entirely. And we just say there's this religion over here. There's what the church does over here. And then there's this other thing called secular government or politics or all that stuff that's dirty and messy. We never want to get dirty with that and just leave it alone. It's all bad. The reality here before Zechariah is there is a head coach. There is someone who is above both. There is someone who is coordinating with the offensive team and the defensive team. There is someone who actually pulls all the strings. There is someone by whom everybody must report. And we cannot forget that. We cannot lose that. And Zechariah has been given this great vision, this sign act he was commanded to do in order to relay that in pictorial form, that it would be vivid and sear upon our minds, that we would not forget this morning the solution to two swords is that there is one Lord. That both these swords are united by the lordship of one, Jesus Christ, over the church and the state, and the state. These are many false opinions that we have as Christians to avoid all these things. So here's an example of where Jesus wields the sword with the church. Speaking to his disciples, we read recently, as he was commissioning them to do their mission, he said, do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And he meant that metaphorically in the sense that you're going to go out and speak the gospel and it's going to divide people as the sword cuts one part from another. People will either love this gospel or they will hate this gospel. And it will divide families, it will divide nations, it will divide tribes and clans and everything in between. So this is a sword. Jesus does that through the word. That's why we're told in Ephesians 6, that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. This is the sword that has been given to the church. Those who claim to follow Jesus Christ. The sword they wield is the Word. It is sharp. It is very sharp. It is peaceful. It does not hurt. It will not kill. But it is very sharp and very effective. It is the Word of God that we as the church are primarily concerned with. That we speak the word of God to the world, to ourselves, to one another, to our families. That the word of God would be cutting us all the time. 
that it would be shaping us and shifting us to be Jesus Christ. There is so much stuff in me that I have to cut out. There is so much stuff in you that must be gone. The word is for this. The sword. But the state also has been given a blade. So here in Romans 13, Jesus rolls over this sword. It is a second sword, but it is the same Lord. He is the coordinating coach. He works it all. In Romans 13, it says, For he, the government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, the government, does not bear the sword in vain. The government has the sword and does not bear it in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for conscience sake. Paul's saying, here's the deal. God has given governments extreme power, power of coercion, power to force people, physically force them into doing things. And that is typified, imaged, exemplified by the sword. And so therefore, Paul says, listen to them because they have the sword and they have a sword for a purpose. You have to obey them. They're there for your good. They're there to hold up justice. They're there to do good in the world. And they are God's servants, he says, and they avenge God for his wrath presently on the world is meted out or mediated through civil governments. Therefore, we must be subject to them and also for conscience sake. This is the other sword. But realize what he just said there. This sword is God's. That's the biggest connection. Many think, well, there's church, there's religion, and Jesus Christ is over here, and he is in control of all this. But when it comes to government, when it comes to the state, when it comes to the civil institutions, that's just all free game. Who knows? Romans 13 says, no. They are God's servants. They serve him. He is Lord. He gave them that sword. And that sword is his sword. It actually is bringing out his wrath. He's using that sword. It's his sword as well. Two swords and one Lord. This is is very important and the beginning of it all comes from how Zechariah brings this example to us. He goes on to say, the word came to Zechariah, take these men, these exiles of Babylon. And he took gold and silver and he fashioned a crown from them. Look at that image. You can't mold gold and silver together so wonderfully without losing their elements. The idea is that he put these two metals together and weaved some type of crown that was gold and silver. And the plural there, it actually says crowns. That this was a multiple layered crown placed on the head of a single person. This is the beginning of an image of human government. Think about how in scripture it lays out all the pictures from the beginning. There was one man in a garden who was responsible to govern himself. 
And he said, do whatever you want, just don't eat that tree. And he did not govern himself well. And he ate that tree. He was also given a woman, a wife. And so you have individual government. Then you have a woman, a wife, which produces a family, which is familial government. And then things kept getting worse and worse and worse. The brothers killed one another. Lamech began to do evil things and even make more evil across the world. And God stepped in and unraveled it all with a flood. And meted out justice after it accumulated so terribly high. But what he did right after the flood is he made what many point to as his institution of civil government. With Noah, he said, now, from now on, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. That is, you, God says, have to sort this out yourself. That actual other men are just and right in killing other men. You don't have to wait for the whole world to get terrible and tyrannical. That there actually is a place in which anyone who sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Which matches perfectly with Romans 13. That there is an institution in this world in which men are allowed to kill other men. Or at least hinder them in their sin. And there you have civil government. Now, what happens is it gets worse and worse. And there's many kingdoms and people oppress one another. And then God calls Abraham. And he calls Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And hundreds of years later, he makes this nation, the one he wants to form after his own design. Unlike all the other nations in the world, he makes this one nation Israel. And he says, now here's how this government's going to work. You're going to have priests, but they never were given a king. All the other nations had kings. Israel was given priests, they were given governors, they were given judges, they were given elders, they were given tribal heads, which might be maybe if you want to say governors of our state, the governor of the state of Pennsylvania, the governor of the state of California. They had heads of all these tribes, these states from their nation, but no one central king. God refused to give it to them in his wisdom. And with a warning, he finally gave them the king. Only warning to say this, when you have a king, here is your warning. He will take your sons and your daughters. He will put them in the army. He will make them laborers. He will make them slaves. He will take the best of your fields. He will take the best of your vineyards. You will pay taxes and you will serve him. And he will multiply chariots. He will multiply horses. He will make large palaces. He will take advantage of you. And then he says, now you can have your king because you want your king. Because obviously from all of the scripture is, the human heart is actually really sinful. It's just true. And God knowing that says, you do not want a king. But here you can have a king. But in his beautiful wisdom, unlike all the other nations in their present context, this king was not allowed to be a priest. His power was not given to him ultimately. There was some type of sacred, holy authority which he couldn't touch. He couldn't claim to be God. He couldn't claim to be supreme. He couldn't claim to have ultimate power. There were priests with also having a king. And so here, hundreds of years later, after all their, you read the book of Kings, of course, after all their kings become corrupt, murder a bunch of people, it, you know, intrigue, and violence, 
And all, all the book of Kings is just a big book saying, you really don't want a king. And after they screwed it up so bad, God gave them the government they properly deserved. Enslaved to their sin, he gave them a government they deserved, which was a government of slavery. And so they became slaves to the kingdom of Babylon. And after 70 years is where we pick up in Zechariah, where they've come out of slavery. And it's a fresh start again. How should we form a government? Should we just go back to doing the same thing? The same exact thing that got us into slavery in the first place? Should we go back to the kings? Should we make a second book of the kings? Should we make a sequel to all the chaos and problems that they caused the first time around? And then Zechariah is given this image of a man who wears two crowns. Two. And he's, go- he's told to go to Joshua, who is the priest at the time. But there is no king in Israel. The only governor there is a man named Zerubbabel. He is not a king and he is not a priest. So he goes to Joshua who actually is the priest and he places this crown of gold and silver and lays it on his head. And everyone just looks at him. And that's it. That's it. This man will build a temple. And then he picks up the crown, takes it off the man's head, and sets it aside and says, someday, because it's not you, and it's not Zerubbabel. That's it. That's it. How amazing. Hundreds of years ago to read that and be like, well, that, how does that help me today? Where's my five points for how I can live a better life? That doesn't, that doesn't, not very helpful. What is it? That takes... The wisdom wrapped up in that will take hundreds of years to unravel. See, when you read through the book of Kings, you realize that the kings would always get more power and they would step into the realm that the priests were allowed to do. Sometimes if they were good kings, they were allowed because their inward virtue was some Level in which they could actually go to the temple, offer sacrifice, do incense, do the things that priests were only allowed to do. Sometimes it didn't go well. Second Chronicles 26, there is a king, Uzziah. Now he grew strong, and with that, the same theme as you read through the stories of every king, he grew strong, he grew proud, he did evil things. Why would you ever want a king? He entered the temple to burn incense. And then the priest came to him and said, It is not for you to burn this incense. You are king, Uzziah. You are not allowed here to burn incense before God. You cannot be in this sacred place. You should be in the secular place. You are of the state. We are of the church. Do not come into this realm. And he, in his pride, goes and tries to burn incense and leprosy breaks upon him. He crossed a realm that God had set apart so that no one should have supreme power. That no one should think that he has all the cards. This is a checks and balance system. Where did we get that idea? God rid it up into this system. But then also sometimes men like David, we were told who had a heart after God. He was a holy man, anointed by God. There was this image sometimes in which he could do things that kings weren't supposed to do. In 2 Samuel 6, he goes and takes an ephod, a priestly garment, only priests would wear them, and he puts it on. And he offers sacrifices, and then he stands up and blesses the people, 
All things that only priests would do. All things that were particularly sacred for the priest, not for a king to be concerned with. But David steps into that realm. He crosses over for a moment. And we see it and the story moves on. And you just wonder, what would it be to have someone with that much power if they were good? If they were a good king like David? Every king was limited. They were not allowed to do these various things. But here it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the prophecy given to Zechariah, the man, his name is the branch. He shall branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. Only a few years after this prophecy, Zerubbabel built an actual temple. So we know for sure it's not him. Because we're told that he would actually build the temple to follow. This priest king, he goes on to say, He who shall build this temple of the Lord, he shall bear royal honor. He will sit and rule on a throne, and there shall be priests on a throne. The council of peace shall be between them both. That was the meaning of the whole sign. That there will be a man who is a priest. He will rule on a throne. The priest shall sit on the throne. And the council of both of them will be at perfect peace. The realm of the state and the realm of the church. The realm of the secular. The realm of the sacred. The realm of the priest and the realm of the king will dwell in perfect peace and harmony. This is the image that was given. This is the prophecy that was promised. And then right after the crown is taken off. And they're told to set the crown in the temple as a reminder. As a reminder that this should happen. But it is not for this day. And so what goes on further is Zerubbabel continues to build the temple. It's obviously not the temple mentioned because Zerubbabel is not a priest and he's not a king. And it's forgotten. And the prophecy just sits there for hundreds of years. This dream of a fleeting image is only just an image in a dream. And then Hebrews 4.14. We have a great high priest who has ascended to the heavens. We have a great high priest who has ascended to the heavens. That temple wasn't the real temple. Those temples, that image, was everything of just this whole world. It was a sign. It was a picture. Jesus Christ, understand this as we begin through this sermon series, closing through this point. Jesus Christ is the real priest. He offered his own body and blood. He ascended into actual heaven, the highest heaven, the real temple, with real blood, in a real body, as real as yours and mine. And he sat down in his temple. When you went into that temple, the high priest never had a place to sit. There was only one seat in the whole temple. It was in the Holy of Holies, and it was called the mercy seat. And it was empty. And the priest was there to stand the whole time. Every moment he was in that temple, he only stood in order to do incense and sacrifice and prayers. He was a servant of the king. He was not there to sit and relax. He was a slave within the temple, is the image. And so here is the image of where a priest enters into 
the throne room of God and sits down without being put to death. That his throne would be a seat of mercy. So when Jesus, as we were talking about his mission, comes into the world and no one understands what he is doing. Why are you not ruling and reigning like all the kings that we were told would come as the prophesied Messiah? Why are you only healing people? Why are you only opening blind eyes? Why are you only healing lame legs? Why are you not cracking heads? Why are you not bringing corporal punishment? Why are you not bringing judgment? Why are you only here to forgive sin? Why are you speaking so much about mercy? Why are you speaking so much about salvation? Why are you speaking so much about redemption? Why aren't you speaking about reformation? Why aren't you speaking about retribution? Why is it all about redemption? Because he was doing exactly what this image represents. He came to bring redemption. Only later to come with retribution. He was coming as a priest. The image here is of Joshua, who was the priest. He was not a king. But there is a priest who actually worked his way into the realm of kingship. All throughout the Old Testament, most of the kings tried to weasel their way into priestship. But here is Jesus, who comes humbly, telling his people not to pick up swords, So that he would go and offer his own body and blood on that true mercy seat. Turn around and sit on a throne which is also a mercy seat. And from there, then, after the resurrection, after he ascended, he is then crowned. Then crowned with all power and authority over dominions. And in Revelation 19, a sword of his mouth goes out and slays the Nathans on the side of his leg. It says he is king of kings and lord of lords. And he has subdued the state. He has subdued the great Leviathan. He has subdued the beast of Revelation. He has subdued autonomous man seeking to lay their hand on the throne of God and have absolute power in this world. And it is Jesus who has subdued this evil proclivity written on every page of scripture as a suffering man, as a priest, as a Joshua. And the Hebrew word for Joshua is the same word for Jesus. There will be a Joshua, a Yehoshua, who is also a Yeshua. His name is literally written into the prophecy. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we pray that you would give us this beautiful wisdom to know that you are Lord over all, Lord, we understand that you have filled the highest heavens with your glory. We understand that you are a priest king. You have no beginning of days. You have entered into this world and you rule over both realms. Lord, we pray that we would see the implications of this over the next few weeks. That you would have it feel our hearts so that we would know who we are. That we would know our proper place that we would know your proper wisdom, that we would know how to love you in this world for your glory and for your namesake, for you are Jesus. You are Jesus, the one who saves. 
Lord, thank you for saving us from all of our sins. Thank you for your grace. Let us praise you in your name. Amen. Amen. Please stand if you're able.